Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. I went uh, right much in debt because I hadn't been doing good. And my boys told me to either get in the race or get out of the race. So I borrowed money on my property and bought me a real good car and got it taught for the first time. But it took me nine years to take that car. I still think I'm capable of running with the best and with the, a real good car, I believe I can fool the world. This is Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Center Court is presented by the Winner's Circle Network in conjunction with the Sampson Family Foundation, striving to uplift, empower, and educate the communities we live in. Now here's Ralph and your host, Mac McDonald. Welcome into the Winner's Circle Network and Center Court with Ralph Sampson. And uh, I, I say it every week, Ralph, that there are shows... And then there are shows and every week <laughs> you just keep adding another layer, another, you know, Baskin Robbins flavor. And I just, um, I am so excited about today and the history. And, and as I said, you just heard the open. I, I'm so excited about meeting the Scott family and what Wendell Scott meant to this family. Well, again, the shows are interesting to me. It's fun to develop. You know, I sit here and think about shows all the time and how can we bring the listeners out there something that's creative, but also, something that's impactful uh, in their lives as well. So this show is one of those shows. It's heartfelt. It has some history. It has some current day stuff as well that we can integrate with it as well. So it's going to be fun to hear these stories, but also understand this person, Wendell Scott. Well, heartfelt is an understatement because I sat and watched the, the documentary <laughs> and cried like a baby. And I think it's truly one of the, one of the great stories. And, and, you know, as you, you would think that NASCAR would not have a big, and I'm not trying to, but it, you would think that they wouldn't have a big diversity program, but they really, really do. And they're, they're pushing the right buttons, I think, to, to put this forward. Well, you know, over the last number of years, Mac, the, uh, this has happened and it's kind of transformed the whole diversity. Now people have diversity managers and companies mm -hmm. and trying to figure this out, whatever. I, I'm going to transition real quick because I think it deserves a mention, especially at the top of the show before we get to uh, the, the Wendell Scott story and, uh, and our guest today. Um, very, very pleased what happened this week with uh, somebody who has been a cop, a flight attendant, uh, <laughs> a coach. All of a sudden, Jennifer King becomes the first black woman to become a full-time coach with the Washington football team. And Ron Rivera had been with her at Carolina. Uh, what a fabulous, fabulous story this was. And I know it had to touch a lot of people. And, you know, I have a daughter. You have daughters. You know, it's like, hey, this is, this is, you can do this, you know. And I think it's just a great story. I mean, amazing story. But, you know, she paid her dues, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, there's people out there that, you know, may think that this was given because of the climate of the world today. But Coach Rivera and her being with Carolina Panthers and down in that system, she knows the game of football, right? Mm -hmm. And to be a running back coach and a coach anywhere in the National Football League, I don't care what color you are or what your pedigree, you got to know your stuff. Yeah. And, and and for the first one to do it, if she doesn't know her stuff, there won't be a next one after this. You know, because yeah. they say, oh, you, you can't really do it. A woman can't hold her own. But I think she'll be great at what she does. 
in 2019, she was coaching at Dartmouth and she was coaching quarterbacks and wide receivers and doing the defensive game plan. They went nine and one and they won the Ivy League title. Now, I, you know, I know she was. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's a great story. Before we go to break, I want to play the soundbite from her press conference as she talked about, look, this is not a Washington football team publicity stunt. These we are coaches trying to get the job done. Here's Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important just to open up the entire pool, you know, of applicants when you have a position. You know, so far, historically in football, it's only essentially 50 percent of the pool. <laughs> you know, it's no, no women are ever considered. And I think, um, you know, for future coach, female coaches coming up, this gives them, um, you know, kind of gets them a foot in the door. It's, it's up to us to do a good job. And, you know, I always say it's not just you're not just going to get here. You know, you got to put the work in. You have to know what you're doing. All right, Stig, really good stuff. And, and again, I think that's a, that's a terrific story as well. Well, let's go to break because when we come back, we're going to talk rubbing and racing. This is Center Court with Ralph Sampson on the Winner's Circle Network. The mission for the Sampson Family Foundation is simple. We strive to uplift, empower, and educate the communities we live in. The foundation promotes charitable and community input, educational development, health and fitness, and scholarship opportunities. The Samson Family Foundation's initiatives focus on patients with cancer, educational scholarship programs, and give students guidance in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The Samson Family Foundation encourages limitless possibilities. Your financial support is tax deductible. To learn more, call 540-615-5097. The website is samsonfamilyfoundation.org uplift empower educate it takes teamwork to make the dream work you're listening to center court with hall of fame basketball player ralph sampson once again here's ralph and mac well, it's the Winter Circle Network with Center Court featuring Ralph Sampson. I'm Mac McDonald. Great to have you. And uh, I'm going to let Ralph do the honors because uh, this is going to be a show of a lifetime right here. So, Ralph, I'm going to let you introduce Mr. Scott. Well, Mac, some people are wondering why this guest is, uh, you know, on the Winter Circle with Center Court. And they think Ralph Sampson is basketball. But Center Court is a little bit more than just basketball. So, there's a Center Court all over the world, right? So, it, it works. So, today we have you know, a descendant, a grandson of the great Wendell Scott. You know, I look back at this uh, this show and I think about the movie Richard Pryor and the Wendell Scott story. So everybody thinks about that, but it's a little bit more to it than that, than that movie. And everybody needs to know what the story is. And also from Virginia, the great state of Virginia. So welcome everyone to Mr. Warwick Scott, the grandson of the great Wendell Scott. Hello, sir, how are you? Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um... It's an honor to be on the podcast with you guys, and I'm looking forward to having a, an interesting conversation, an informative one. Absolutely. I look forward to it. So, Mac, what do you got, Mac? I mean, you you, you watched the documentary and stuff, and it's kind of heartfelt. So what do, you, what do you think? Yeah, it's going to take a couple hours. We need to have two <laughs> segments. Uh, Warwick, it was very, very inspirational. And going back, let's just, yeah, let's talk about your, your grandfather. How did he get started in racing? We'll kind of work through his career real quick before we get to the foundation and all the work you're doing. But how did he, where was the love of driving a car as fast as he could? Man, such an interesting story. My grandfather um, obtained his love for uh, racing and cars from his father. 
Um, his father, William Scott, was the first um, chauffeur, if you will, in the history of Danville, Virginia, where we're from. Um, in, in those days, um, the two wealthiest families in Danville shared one vehicle. Um, and my great-grandfather, William, was the mechanic and driver for those two families. And so that's the first time my grandfather got exposed, you know, to an automobile. Um, and as he went through life, um, he was a mechanical savant. Um, he was able to work on bikes. So he worked on bikes in the neighborhood and fixed bikes. And in his neighborhood, he was, he, it, for a period of time, he was one of the only um, young black men in the neighborhood that had a bike. Um, he would fix the white kids' bikes and stuff. And he mm -hmm. was bike racing and things of that nature. And that led into his teenage years. And he was always ingenuitive and, and, and ran his own businesses and he picked sweet potatoes. He had a sweet potato business on the side and he, you know, he worked on, on, um, on bikes and things of that nature. And as he got older, um, his first vehicle, he bought it himself. He was around 12 or 13 years old and he bought it himself and he fixed it himself and got it running. Um, and so, you know, he had been exposed uh, to working on cars and auto mechanics from his father. Um, his father went on there was a period in his life where his parents separated and his father um, moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he was the first foreman at the Studebaker factory in, um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right. And so my grandfather was just literally around cars, you know, his whole life. Um, as the story goes, as he, as he got around 16, 17 years old, um, he developed some relationships um, that allowed him um, to have access to moonshine. Um, and then from the moonshine scenario, and this is when his legend began to grow mm. as far as a street driver, as a street racer. And so over the years, he, you know, he had gained exposure to that. Um, and then he went to the military where he was a soldier mechanic, a paratrooper and a boxer. Um, and he served in the military and a, and a mechanic. And that's when he developed his outright mechanical proficiency, you know, applying the knowledge and the things he learned in the military with what he already knew. Um, and when he returned home from the military, um, he had a taxi company um, before he went. Um, and when he returned home from the military, initially he was denied his taxi license. Um, and that led him into the world of moonshine. A lot of people don't know that, um, you know, our area of Virginia, the South side of Virginia is considered the moonshine capital of the world. Um, primarily because of Franklin County, Virginia, um, and Pennsylvania County, Virginia. There's even a television show called Moonshiners. Uh, it's been on TV almost mm -hmm. 10 years. This centered um, right in Danville, Pennsylvania County, Franklin County. Um, and so, you know, his his relationships, you know, are the, were, the, were the real deal ones. Yeah. And and just to give you an idea, my grandfather, um, his his moonshine running just wasn't a a Danville operation. And it's profound when you think about it because the fact that he was a moonshine runner is what kind of attracted his first opportunity in the sport of what is called now called NASCAR. Mm -hmm. But one would ask themselves, how proficient do you have to be at something like running moonshine? How good did you have to be at it for you to end up being the only African-American NASCAR driver and team owner to ever win a race in the sport, you know? And so my grandfather had a, he had a moonshine network 
that he was running from far parts of Maryland all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina, because those areas at the time were dry counties. Well, I mean, to, to me, so what resonates with me with that story is his entrepreneurial spirit at the age of 12 or 13, Mac, from make, you know, fixing bikes, because, you know, I was little, I, I fixed bikes as well. So you understand that craft, but talk about that spirit because that whole spirit, now you can see the evolution of a young kid, right? Out here that maybe listen to this story that's fixing bikes in the neighborhood to having a bike company to raise enough money to buy a car at an early age to fix that car and go into the military in the automotive world and come out and 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 to, to fix a race car to win a NASCAR race. He fought in a segregated, you know, his 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 division in the military, it was segregated. You know, when you thinking when you know when you think about it, you know, my father was telling me just the other day a story about his father sharing with him what the boat ride was like, what the ship ride was like to France. He fought in General Patton's army, um, you know, and he was a boxer um, over there and just, you know, listening to those things. And then he, then him making it back to America to come back to discrimination and, and to not have the ability to renew his, you know, his, his license for his business. Um, you know, what I say, you know, from a perseverance side is what I, I was always told that if you just follow your dreams and keep your head down and keep working, good things will happen. Our guest is Warwick Scott, who is the grandson of the great Wendell Scott. He has a foundation. We'll get into that a little later on in the program. So Warwick, with all that and the, you know, the, the ability to fix cars and that kind of thing. So when did the racing bug hit him? My dad always described it. To, you know, is that my grandfather always had an addiction to speed. <laughs> so that was, um, and I mean, he shared this with me himself, but I mean, you know, there would be times where he would lay in bed at night and, and he just couldn't go through the whole night and he would get up and just go run moonshine because he, he loved being chased. He loved being chased by the police. Um, he was really, he was only caught once. And that was with the assistance of one of, he had a guy that he was working with that, you know, ended up working with the police to catch him. And so that's the only way, that's the only way he got caught. And he only got caught once. Um, but, you know, it was just, it was just the, you know, as a black man in those times, I think he found something that was, that he found something that was taking place in the wee hours of the morning, something that was taking place under the moonlight that allowed him to feel free. You know, that's what I think drove him. It was the, it was, it was the, it was the freedom of it, you know, and, and the, the risk that came along with it only enhances, it only enhanced the feeling of that freedom, you know? And then of course, being a committed parent and husband, he figured out that this was a way for him to try to give his children an opportunity to succeed later on in life. Um, and, and we all know as parents that your children are your ultimate motivator, your ultimate driving force, you know, for doing all the things that you may not want to do or may not feel like doing or some things that are even risky. So anybody out there that has that life experience certainly can identify with the Wendell Scott store. I think that's where he learned to 
to drive a dirt track so good, you know, because he, he said, I love to get them old bootleg cars sideways all the way through them turns and throw gravel all over the police cars. <laughs> he became addicted to the thrill of actually outrunning, you know, the, the, the revenue or the police officers. He had an addictive uh, love of speed and competition. He was he was responsible for a lot of um, <laughs> he was responsible for a lot of um, police cars being crashed and damaged. No, not and, really, really. Yeah, and there, there, there's one story um, that, that took place in the in a community called Camp Grove in Danville, Virginia, and this is a community that's inside of Danville, but right on the on the outskirts of the county, and it was. It's a snake road, if you can imagine with me. It's a snake road as you go through the community. The mm -hmm. kind of road that's perfect for a roadblock. And so one night as he was hauling moonshine, um, they did set up a roadblock at the end of the road as he was leaking into Pennsylvania County. Um, and he backed out of the community the same way he drove in. But he had police cars chasing him. And he, was, he put it in reverse and was going faster in reverse than they were going in drive. <laughs> when he got to the top of the street, he hit a 180 and took off and sped back to his garage. So he pulled into the garage um, and the police finally caught up to him, showed up at his garage maybe 30, 35 minutes later. Um, got the dogs barking and lights flashing and, you know, a window, we got you now, man, we got you now. Um, and my grandfather had took the engine out of the car that he was driving and had it hanging on the engine rack. Um, and my grandfather said, hey, listen, man, I don't, y'all got the wrong guy, man. He said, I, how could I be running moonshine when this car doesn't even have an engine in it? <laughs> so they took him to court. In those days, they had night court. And so they took him, wrote him a citation. He had to go down to the magistrate and state his case. And the judge threw it out. And the famous, the famous statement from the judge was to the police, Next time you bring him in here, I want Wendell, the car, and the motor. <laughs> Ralph, he pulled the Ralph, he pulled the motor before they got wow. there. Yeah, 35, the 40 out. minutes later, pulled the motor out the car. Now the motor got to be a little bit hot, right? Right. Got a little warm somewhere, so they didn't touch. They didn't touch the car. They didn't touch the motor. They were just hanging up there, right? So yeah. he, he he knew how to operate, right? He knew how to. I mean, he probably had three boats and a four-boat motor. He could drive it. And, I mean, just think about the ingenuity there. I mean, it's crazy. Well, you got, well, see, so if you think about uh, Danville to Maryland, Danville to Charlotte, he also had, he had getaway cars stashed away along those hundreds of miles. Of course he did. And so, <laughs> and the cars were covered they would be backed, backed in the woods and they would be covered with tarps, with leaves and stuff all over them. And so if he hit a road bump with state troopers or something along the way, you know, all of his all of his moonshine cars had things like two, two gas tanks on them. They were like MacGyver car. He had two gas tanks on them. Um, he had switches that he could hit that would short out his brake lights so they couldn't tell <laughs> if he was looking a quick left or a quick right. Um, and so there were times where he would wreck his own cars. 
he would drive his car near a location where he had a, where he had his getaway car and he would bend the throttle and, and my grandfather was an expert of jumping out of cars while they were moving. I think that's something he learned in the military. But he, remember, he was a paratrooper in the military. He could jump out of the car while I was driving and he would bend the throttle down and the car would wreck and then he would disappear. Yeah. But he had some connections that knew where those cars would auction those cars were being sold at. And then he would send you know, the guys that work for him, he would send them back to the auctions to buy the cars because see, they were wrecked. And so they was, they were being sold for pennies on the dollar, but he knew how much ingenuity and different things that he had souped up in it. And what he didn't want was he didn't want the police to figure out instead of sending Wendell's cars to the auction, let's take them and run them and soup them up to run them to catch him. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I mean, I mean. So I, I wreck my car. I go back and buy it back, so I don't get caught. I know the ingenuity in the car, so the police don't get the car. And I buy it back. I take it back somewhere, and I refix it, put it up back on the market, put it on the a or scrap it, or scrap it, or use that same car to reinforce the new yeah. car. You know, right, right, right. And they weren't. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't hauling gallons. He was hauling. You know, he was hauling. You know, I'm talking about the whole back seat removed. Right. 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 Paints, court, whatever he was hauling, yeah. Yeah, he was hauling it. No, oh, that's amazing. Warwick that's amazing. Scott, Warwick Scott is our uh, is our guest. He is the grandson of the great Wendell Scott. He is the CEO and founder of the foundation, as I said, which we'll get into a little later on in the program. So, so Warwick, when did then actually he wanted to race? He wanted to be part of a circuit. He wanted to go around in an oval, and he wanted to show people how good he could drive. Right. So, so he, so he, he had a conversation. Uh, with uh, he was he had ran into a, the legal situation I spoke of, and he had a conversation with um, the local track owners. The local track owners were looking for a Negro, quote unquote, that they could have come to the local racetrack to race. At this time, this is an unthought of concept. Mm -hmm. and so they went to the local police department to get some names of some black men that had speeding tickets. <laughs> and, 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 and the local and the police said, hey, look no further. I can tell you, the guy you want to talk to is Wendell Scott. And so that's actually how his, how his racing career began. Local track owners approached law enforcement, law enforcement and local track owner approached Wendell Scott offer him the opportunity to participate in a race in which he, in which he finished third, his first race, he finished third. Um, most people, including African-Americans thought at the time that he was crazy because this was not designed to be an opportunity for him. This was designed to be entertainment for white people and basically a public lynching. Of course, what were they gonna do? They were gonna run him off the track, flip him in the air, you know, it was going to be entertainment to watch him get hurt. All the while, the track promoter would have um, twice uh, the amount of attendees that evening, and they would have sell twice the amount of concessions um, as, of course, African-Americans that were forced to sit in the colored section, you know, watch my grandfather race. But he surprised them, and he finished third that evening. And then he went on to, to, to start traveling to other races in Virginia, which was then called the Dixie Circuit. 
and he began to travel to other races all throughout Virginia and he began to win everywhere he went. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I could be, I could be mistaken here. Fact checkers, forgive me. Um, but in 1958, I think he was voted as the Virginia sportsman of the year, like mm. the you know, Virginia racer of the year um, for his success. Um, Wendell, Wendell Scott won 128 races before he entered NASCAR's ranks. So local people in the region, in the, in the state, had seen Wendell Scott win before. You know, um, it just was not, he, he was not running in what was called, officially called NASCAR yet at, at, that, at that time. A hundred plus races in a short period of time to hear that story, Mac, it's just still an amazing story to me because now, now I'm running races. I come from 12, 13 years old, mm -hmm. when my whole business is to rent on the circuit in Virginia. You know, as a young kid, Waynesboro, Virginia, they had these drag strips, right? Probably or races at dirt street. He probably racing everything he can get his hands on, right? <laughs> uh, during those days and won those races and, and, and was very ingenuity. But as a as a, a grandson and you reflect back on that, what how'd that make you feel? It's just, you know, I still, I live in it every day because it's my job. And so the, the feeling never escapes me of, you know, just how enchanted his life was and how blessed he was and how, you know, how unique he was. You know, every every time I travel through Virginia, there's not a there's not a part of Virginia that I travel through where I don't like feel his presence or have a memory of him, you know, racing in Waynesboro and the Natural Bridge and Staunton yeah, yeah. and Langley and mm -hmm. Bristol and Abington and you know, um, Brunswick Speedway out in Lawrenceville before, you know, before, you know, you know, his footprint is all over the Commonwealth of Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and Florida and Alabama. You know, he even raced in California. In those days, NASCAR races were in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, they went all the way up to New Hampshire. They raced in New York. You know, they raced everywhere. Um, and so it's just, you know, it just, it just shows me every time I think about, uh, a challenge I may face or, 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 you know, something big that has to get done. You know, I just really just always think about my grandfather and, and just put my head down and go to work because he, you know, <laughs> what he did was amazing. He was out running the fastest cars there and all of those guys had factory backing. There were faster cars than Scott, but Scott had figured out a way to set up his car so it just flew over those bumps. He got the lead, and he ran off and left him. Just to continue the, the chapter work, just curious then, how did your grandfather land in the NASCAR circuit? How, how did he work his way then? You know, how did they let him race? Was that a hard, was that a hard thing? He got his, he obtained his, he obtained his official NASCAR license in 1953. Um, he actually got it out of Richmond, the Richmond, Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, they had a, I guess their licensing office was out of Richmond. Um, and the gentleman in Richmond, my grandfather went to get, uh, get the license. And he told him, he said, you know, Wendell, you know, you have to be crazy 
to think that you're going to run in NASCAR all through the Jim Crow South. You know, it's a doggone suicide mission. You know, my grandfather's response to him was, you know, pretty much let me, you know, hey, man, I appreciate your concern, but let me, <laughs> you know, let me worry about that. Um, and that's how he obtained his NASCAR license. It was it was never really designed totally for him to get one. Mm -hmm. It was done just based upon, like I would like, like I think I feel like, you know, I think his character and the type of person he was allowed that moment with the licensor that allowed him to say, hey, you know, oh, well, you know, huh, go ahead and fill it out because it was just paperwork, you know, and he obtained his license that way and he began you know, he began to travel, you know, my grandfather was, um, and I say this gingerly because I believe all people are beautiful, but my grandfather was, is what is described as light skin. Okay. My grandfather was mm -hmm. very, very light skin. Um, he had eyes that changed colors <laughs> the day. Um, so sometimes they were blue, sometimes they were greenish gray, you know, whatever. And, um, and so a lot of times, if the promoter didn't promote the fact that he was African-American, a lot of a lot of, it wasn't so much the fans, but it was the people that he would encounter on the way into the NASCAR towns that didn't really realize that he was African-American. That was a running theme in his career in the, in the very beginning, because had they, re had they realized that he was African-American, they maybe would not have made it into the track you know, at all. And so as he began to race, um, he just kept showing up, you know, at every race, you know, he, um, my father and my uncles, um, and some gentlemen from the, from the neighborhood with his pit crew. Um, and they just continued to compete. Um, and he was towing his cars to races with a tow bar, other guy, other, you know, other racing groups had trucks and he was towing with a tow bar. Um, the Daytona 500, he raced in seven of those. Um, he won the Jacksonville 200, which is widely recognized as his, as his, as his, mis, as his most historic accomplishment. Um, even when he won the Jacksonville 200, he, he had to run two laps more than the rest of the field. And when the race was uh, completed, the tradition was that he would kiss the local beauty queen, that the winner kisses the local beauty queen which most times, uh, dare I say all times, but that time was a white woman. Mm -hmm. um, and that moment of, of what I call fear, the fear that he may embrace her or even touch her, led to what, in my opinion, ends up being the greatest sports atrocity, you know, in, in sports history as we know it, where he was denied a victory celebration. He was denied... Uh, um, he was denied his trophy. He was not given his money, his purse, until hours later after everyone had left, after he had, you know, raised a lot of hell about it. Um, they gave him his money. And so this article um, that you see in my background mm -hmm. um, represents that moment in time. Um, there was a journalist named Gene Granger from Tallahassee, Florida, and he is the journalist that reported the victory, you know, to the world. So it was his greatest high, but it was also his greatest low because he was expecting to cross the threshold of sponsorship. 
he believed that all he had to do, well, you know, there are plenty of drivers in NASCAR that had obtained sponsorship that had, had nowhere near the record that my grandfather had. But he always believed that if he had just um, been able to, you know, to win, um, that he would obtain that sponsorship opportunity. It was one that was promised to him by Lee Coca at that time. Um, but he never got that opportunity. So 495 career starts in NASCAR, 147 top 10 finishes, 20 top top, 20 top five finishes. Um, in 1966, he finished third in in third in point standings as an owner. Um no sponsor his entire career. Yeah, crazy stuff. And so, Ralph, as the story goes, Buck Baker, who was two laps behind, got the trophy, celebrated with the champagne. And then later, Buck Baker's wife, who was a lap counter for him, told the officials, you know that Buck didn't win it and ended up, they eventually, eventually, but it came a lot later, didn't it, Warwick? They, yeah. got, they got the trophy and the recognition, uh, the recognition for your grandfather. Well, we never got the recognition. We never got the recognition. We did, we got a replica trophy. Um, the recognition never came. The moment never happened. Mm. You know? Yeah. Well, and then of course, uh, as the story goes, the Talladega race in 1973, which uh, when he finally got that souped up car and uh, was blowing people away early. And then it was one of the worst accidents in NASCAR history. Yes. Talladega, uh, Warwick, I'm sure that was a big part of your family's Thanksgiving conversations. Yes. Because that yes. ended his career, didn't it? He got injured. He got hurt enough that that He raced one more time. He raced one more time on uh, the World 600 um, in Charlotte. Um, but, but that was, you know, that car was one of his better cars. He was his own mechanic, you know, throughout his career as well. Um, one, you know, the only driver in NASCAR history to hop out of his car and during the pits and work on his own car. If you just think about that. Change his own tires, Ralph. He would change his own tires. Without, without speed guns. You got to see you. I want you to, I want you to, to, to imagine the fact that he was not along with the lack of sponsorship came the outright denial of him obtaining the tools that other teams had. And then there was the barrier in sponsorship. There's also a huge financial barrier that doesn't allow you to run the same equipment or have the same tools. So for example, you know, our tire irons were welded by him with, with the socket for the lug welded into the tire iron and reinforced by him. He was a master welder and he could forge metal. He did all kinds of things, you know, um, leading up to the races, you know. So, you know, lack of crossing that sponsorship threshold um, and, and, and him never being able to truly to obtain the affection of corporate America um, certainly makes his, makes his legacy even more profound, you know, when you consider those things. Yeah. What a story. So, so, so my question will shift gears a little bit here is, you know, so all of that information, all the NASCAR races, all the, you know, the, the Jacksonville race that you mentioned, all that and more, how has now NASCAR embraced 
you, uh, your grandfather, and we mentioned Mac earlier in this uh, show when we were offline here, that the car is at the NASCAR Museum in Charlotte. How have they embraced it? We mentioned uh, Mr. Brandon Thompson. Hopefully we'll have him on again at one of these shows as well. Somebody that's the diversity manager at NASCAR. How has they embraced you and what are they doing to keep this legacy alive? Great well, question. You know, you know, NASCAR has, um, well, one of the things that they did that we are very proud of is uh, he was enshrined into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2015. Um, and he is the only African-American um, to have that honor um, in the sport. Um, he's also enshrined into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame and the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. I have to say that. Yes. Um, but, um, but you know, he, um, so they have, you know, they made the step of making sure that he had his place, you know, kind of on the Mount Rushmore of uh, NASCAR drivers, um, if you will. Um, I can tell you um, from personal experience that um, the gentleman you spoke of, Brandon, Brandon Thompson, um, he is newly appointed um, in the realm of diversity and he is, working with a team of people and they are making uh, stringent changes, um, you know, to some of the approach that has been taken um, towards attracting minority participation, but also highlighting my grandfather's legacy. Um, they were one of our title sponsors for our legacy gala, the Wendell Scott Foundation. We have a legacy gala every year where we celebrate and honor, um, which will be this year, the 58th anniversary of my grandfather's first NASCAR victory, which is wow. Jackson. Um, December 1st. So they were um, one of our title sponsors um, this year um, and, you know, paying it forward um, and, and preparing to celebrate my grandfather's legacy this calendar year, this 2021, um, with my grandfather's 100th birthday being this year. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and, so, and so what I say to um, what I say to the NASCAR fan that, you know, has kind of the chip on their shoulder with regards to Wendell Scott's acknowledgement in the sport is to one remember that Wendell Scott loved the sport. He is a, he's an original member of the NASCAR family as we are the, the first African-American family of NASCAR. And so within a family structure, um, there's a forgiveness aspect to it. Um, and I would ask everyone to tune in and pay close attention to this year because you're gonna see some things that you've never seen before um, in regards to Wendell Scott that I know will make him proud but will also make the core NASCAR fan um, proud. And in doing so, um, we'll, be, we'll put that bridge for diversity back up, the one that we know um, has existed amongst so many different cultures and ideologies over the years. You know, my grandfather's story, you know, um, one sports writer said, um, after we did an interview, he said, he sat back and he said, wow, he said, that sounds like to me, the world needs a little more Wendell Scott right now. <laughs> give him, <laughs> give him hell, Wendell, right? right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, work in the plight of the legacy of Wendell Scott, your grandfather, you created the Wendell Scott Foundation. Yeah, Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. How can people donate? But what is the main mission of the foundation? Well, you know, the Wendell Scott Foundation um, was born out of you know my life experience as a member of the Scott family and the time that was spent um, directly with my grandmother and my grandfather. Um, we wanted to resurrect the entity that could carry out the spirit of, of what he went through um, and the spirit of being able to overcome or, or achieve despite all odds. And so, you know, our mission statement is, is pretty simple. You know, we are designed to provide opportunities for youth that have been identified as underserved or underprivileged um, that 
embody opportunities like a NASCAR experience, um, but it's not reserved to that. Um, we provide STEM education opportunities at the highest level um, for students ranging from the age of eight to 18. Um, our after school programming called Steering the STEM um, is centered around race car simulation um, where we provide students with a race car simulation experience and they also get to participate in iRacing, which has had a huge uptick in usage since um, the coronavirus epidemic. We've been um, enhancing our digital footprint um, through iRacing and through simulation um, for many, many years now. Um, we also have a program called Camp Cultivation where we take 60 to 70 students that are high school age and we work with land grant institutions like Virginia State or Virginia Tech University and we provide students with a total college experience with agriculture is their entry. Um, and we take their high school transcripts and we turn them into admissions and we try to get students accepted and enrolled in the college. And then we also raise scholarship money. It's a huge thing that we do. So at our gala this year, we were able to give away $12,000 in scholarships in partnership with Liberty University to students that were you know, in need of a boost um, throughout their education. Um, my grandfather's passion was always youth, but youth that were considered to be the underdog the ones that society had more or less attempted to throw away. That's my Wendell Scott experience. That is where his passion lied. And that is where the Wendell Scott Foundation's passion lied. You know, my, my wife and I run the foundation together. Um, we've been in existence for 10 years now. Um, and we are amongst the leaders of STEM education um, throughout the state of Virginia. We're very proud of that. Um, you know, you can follow us on wendellscott.org. You can also make donations there. Um, all of our social media channels are, are open and active and engaging, inspirational and informative. Um, and so we just say to people that, you know, if you investing in us and giving the opportunity, um, the donating to us gives us an opportunity to impact more lives, you know, in my grandfather's honor. Um, and we, we've been able to do a um, paradigm shifting job, you know, at that task and it has been difficult because um, if you know my hometown, um, it, is, it is one of the cities that has had a more challenging um, existence in regards to education and job opportunities. Right, right. And so we feel really great about um, the Wendell Scott Foundation being housed in Danville, Virginia, because it's almost like my grandfather's legend is still alive and breathing in the city. Um, and he's a hero. He's a hero to most um, here. And um, everybody can stand, you know, a daily interaction with a hero. Do you guys do you guys uh, give away moonshine at the uh, foundation <laughs> dinner? <laughs> you know, you know, at, you know, we do. I, I, I'll tell you this much: we do, we do um, have wine and spirit at our, <laughs> at our, at our high ticket black tie fair. That's uh, awesome. <laughs> so, so Mike, I think there's got to be a Wendell Scott whiskey somewhere. Oh, somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shameless, shameless, shameless plug. Shameless plug. There is a Wendell Scott. There is a Wendell Scott whiskey. It's called Shine 34. Okay. All right. All right. And, Love and, it. And, that you know, just stay tuned in 2021. Um, it'll be a lot of interesting things happening. I and, Morg, I can't, and I can't let you get away because you, you know, you grew up with your grandfather. What, what do you remember about him? The garage? Did you crawl under the car? Did you work <laughs> on cars with him? What is it you remember? Personally, oh, that's great. That's about, a, about your grandfather. That's a great question, man. I remember, I remember his hands. 
his hands. Don't make me cry. Don't <laughs> make me cry now. Yeah, we'll get your tissues. <laughs> his, his hands, his hands showed the results of the years. You could see, you could see his, you could see everything he had gone through in his hands and his fingers. Some of the fingers were smashed, fingernails were smashed in piece of a pinky kind of there, kind of not like what happened that, you know, you could see it in his hands. Um, I remember when we would drive places, he would slump down in his seat and he would chew his thumb and he would be going down these curvy roads wide open, man, with one hand. And I remember, I remember that. Um, I remember the way he used to comb his hair. You know, I, as, a, as a child, I, I, I literally would just, you know, just stand there and look at him. I used to go to the bathroom with him. He was my papa. You know, I just, you know, I was, you know, with him everywhere. And, um, and lastly, you know, I just remember his overall kindness and his, and, 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 and his connection to humanity. You know, you know, I, you know, most members of my family have, have a memory of being with him somewhere and him pulling over and picking up a hitchhiker. He did it all the time. Yeah. There were times where he would pick people up. He, there's one gentleman, he picked him up as a hitchhiker and actually found out that he didn't have anywhere to go. And he brought him to Danville. And he lived with our family for two months. Huh. And when he left Danville, my father, my grandfather had taught him how to change oil and work on cars and um, do mufflers and stuff like that. And he, Papa actually went out in the back of the garage and found him an old junker and helped him fix it up. And he left Danville with a car. Well, so, so give me, give me, so that resonates with myself. Give me one thing that resonates with you that you teach your kids and also teach the kids in the foundation. Oh, what, man. What, what is that one thing that's still with you that you teach today to, to your own kids, but also kids in your foundation as well. Okay, so I'm, I'll share it with you guys and hopefully you can remember it. And if you can remember it, we can say it together. It's okay. quite if it's hard to do, do it today. If it's impossible, do it tomorrow. We're going to use that quote, Matt. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate uh, it. If it's hard to do, do it today. Do it today. But if it's impossible, do it tomorrow. That's 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 a that's a great quote. So I know that's somewhere in the fiber of the Wendell Scott Foundation that you teach every day. So I appreciate that. Every 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 young man and young woman that comes through our program, my children, my nephews, my nieces, my little cousins, everybody. We, you know, that's our that's our motto. That's our creed. Um, we also we also don't use the word. We don't use hopeless words like can't and never. Right, right. Yeah. Those words are not a part of our family narrative, but. You know, anybody that's watching and if you're dealing with something or you're struggling with something, I mean, these are really, 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 really tough times. Yeah, right? work the documentary, the documentary had that it was from your family. And I think it was kind of his mantra, too, where he said, sometimes you got to go all in. Yeah. You know, that's just that's just terrific. Stuff. Well, you know, his his saying, OK, y'all getting all y'all getting all the good stuff out of me. So <laughs> his, saying, his saying for um for going all in, it was. Um, you can't swim standing on the bank. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, you got to jump in the deep water to swim, right? Uh, that's that's great. <laughs> you can't jump in knee deep because you can stand up. So you got to swim. And he would say, he would say to me that you know if he said when you get to swimming, he said the deeper he said in deep water, 
everybody's a shark. <laughs> Stick, I'm good now. I've dried the tears. So I think I, can, <laughs> I think I can get us to our last segment. Uh, Warwick, we can't thank you enough. Um, it's so inspirational. We'll tell people windowscott.org. Uh, people can contribute. Sponsorships can be cultivated, I know. Um, and we just can't thank you enough. It's a legacy. It's a wonderful story. I know you're so proud of your grandfather and your whole family, really, yeah. for, for everything that they've meant to you at the same time that, you know, rallying around your grandfather as well. It's just a, it's a wonderful Amazing. story. He was so inducted. Rob, Rob, we're going to do, Rob, we're going to do like, uh, like the NBA guys do at the end of the game. We got to do, a, we got to do a merchandise swap. And I'm a, um, I'm gonna send you, I'm gonna send you some Wendell Scott stuff. I got you too, big guy. I hope so. I was going to say a little, we'll make that happen. I'll send you the address. Oh, a little double X. Yeah. A little double right. X will go. I will, I will wear that with, uh, with pride. Warwick, thank you so much. Um, and, um, you know, for your uh, grandfather, he was inducted in the hall of fame, Ralph. I want to make sure, uh, 2015 is yes, when he sir. went into the NASCAR hall of fame. And, and this is uh, a terrific story. Again, I'm going to remind people go to YouTube. See the documentary. And then, and then check him out on Cars Three. His likeness is in movie Cars Three. Oh I, yeah, I that, but River Scott is is the character. Oh, um, how about that? I didn't realize it. That's great. All right, Ralph and I'll be right back with the uh, as we finish the podcast today and um, on Center Court on the Winter Circle Network. Stay with us. To get into sports casting, you need experience just to get your foot in the door. I can't tell you how many times in my career somebody will ask me, how do I get into your business? How do I become a sportscaster? The first thing I ask is, what have you done? Do you have any experience? And the answer is normally nothing yet. It's because they couldn't find a program that provided the real world experience that you need to get started. So I set out to create a program designed for the next wave of sportscasting talent. And my partner was an obvious one, Full Sail University. Great track record in entertainment and media, great alumni group, and the ability to evolve as the industry changes. We're offering a bachelor's degree that combines the professional expertise that my fellow sportscasters and I have built our careers on with the technologies shaping the world of sports. To succeed in this business, you have to be ready for what's next. But the core of great sportscasting I don't think will ever change. And this program brings it all together. You're listening to Center Court with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. Center Court is presented by the Winner's Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation. Welcome back to the Winner's Circle Network, and this is Center Court with Ralph Sampson. And uh, just a, a, a terrific hour, Ralph, um, with, uh, you know, with Warry and all the things that go into this very, very historical. I don't, their, their foundation is not historical, but the story is about his, as historical as it gets. Well, just think about it. You know, the grandson, two step, two generations away almost, mm -hmm. creates the, the legacy of his grandfather. And it still exists today. And they're doing great things with kids, you know, with scholarships and understanding that. With also understanding the NASCAR lay of the land with Brandon and the diversity that he's doing there to keep the story alive. It's going to only build NASCAR. I mean, people are coming out now. I mean, you know, NASCAR is a, a fan base. It's crazy fans. They, they go yeah. from one track to another <laughs> and, and their RV. I've been yeah. to one oh, yeah. in Phoenix. It was the loudest thing I've ever been to, right? <laughs> but people stay there, live there, camp out there. It's a community with its own community, right? So I think with this inclusion and diversity and these stories with Wendell Scott, I mean, what an amazing interview. I mean, it's, it's, it's stuff that we want to do. 
Well, the fact that, um, you know, the first African-American race car driver to win a grand national race, um, NASCAR, at, you know, NASCAR's highest level, he had like 147 top tens, I think, you know, was the number. And, and so with the whole story, and I'm, and I'm going to tell our audience before we go, you need to go to YouTube and watch the documentary that ESPN did. It's about 45 minutes and it will, it will just jump in your soul and really put you behind the wheel. I think that's the best way to put it because it was, it, it's just such a tribute. And, uh, you know, I, I just think for what they're doing, and by the way, it is um, wendellscott.org is the foundation. I wanted to get that address out, wendellscott.org. I think it's something that, you know, if you, to check it out and you heard them talk about everything that they're doing in the mentoring program and the objectives, it's just a fabulous, fabulous thing. Yeah, we'll put that up and uh, you know go to uh, Center Court Fifty at, on uh, and Instagram. We'll put that stuff up into the social media platform so everybody listening can go check it out. It's an amazing story. You look at from movies by Richard Pryor many many years ago. Yeah, uh, Scott, you know doing you know uh, alcohol runs in the in the backwoods of <laughs> North Carolina was, was amazing, and, and the cops trying to catch him. And so that's the story in the story itself. And Mac, you mentioned earlier, it should be. And that should be another motion picture out there with this story because you know it's got some other tweaks and twists to it as well and we just heard some of them today and just one personal note my mom is from tennessee i know a little bit about moonshine just to tell <laughs> that's it um as we look ahead to next week super super 55 it's hard to believe super bowl 55 in tampa um so many storylines and uh a former virginia kid juan thornhill is going to be involved. Bruce Arians, a former Virginia Tech quarterback back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, Stig, I don't know if you know this, but Bruce Arians, when he played 72 to 74 Virginia Tech, he, of course, white athlete, he was the first to have a black roommate. Yeah. James Barber, Rondé, yeah, yeah, and yes. father. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know the name now, you breath name, but I, I didn't know the whole story. So that's amazing. Isn't that good? Anyway, we'll be hyping, just like everybody else next weekend, we'll be hyping the big game in Tampa. We'll be Ralph, ready in Tampa. Yes, it'll yeah, be fun. Have a, have a great football week. All right, for Ralph Sampson, I'm Mac McDonald on the Winner's Circle Network, and that is Center Court. You've been listening to Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Our podcast is available on the Believe Network at BLEAV.com. Center Court is presented by the Winner's Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation. For more information, log on to SampsonFamilyFoundation.org. Uplift. Empower. Educate. Teamwork makes the dream work. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.